I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. After years of domestic disturbances, a relationship comes to a fatal end. Initially believed to be self-defense, would new evidence prove otherwise? This is the Courtney Clenny story. Megan, this episode has been requested by a lot of our listeners. I saw that. Yes. And I know I do know basic facts here. So usually I don't love to cover cases that are this recent because we don't know everything. And I know there is a ton of information to come, but it highlights so many important issues of intimate partner violence, gender, race. And these are the kind of things we love to critically examine. Absolutely. And I find a lot of similarities to the Nikki Adamando case. So I want you to keep that in mind. And I want to discuss that case at the end here. Oh, okay. Courtney was born April 23rd, 1999 in Midland, Texas. There is really not much known about her upbringing, but I can tell you that she first gained public attention as a bodybuilder. Going by the name Courtney Taylor, she posts many workout videos. And then she became an OnlyFans model. Do you know what this is? I've heard of this site a million times. I just don't, I don't get it. I really okay, don't. Let me explain it to you because I, okay. I didn't get it either. Okay. So OnlyFans initially received mainstream attention after sex workers began using the site during the COVID lockdowns of the spring of 2020. Now, many used it for other reasons, but usually it was considered what we would say NSFW content. Not safe for work. Yes, I thought you'd be too old to know that. <laughs> Thank you. No, that one I actually do know. Uh-huh. I actually thought it was not suitable for work. 
But either way. Either way, I think the, the meaning is still the same. So since then, however, the site has been used by many different types of artists to monetize their fan base by providing extra content. But let's be clear here. Most of the content is still overwhelmingly not suitable for work. And many people have described it as soft porn, with many even going as far to say it is actually just hardcore porn. Now, what it is is a subscription-based platform with ranges from $5 a month to $50 a month. Some content creators can make as much as six figures a year. Wow. So not only was Courtney making a name for herself on OnlyFans, she is a well-known Instagram influencer with the name of Courtney Taylor again. Okay. She has over 2 million followers, and most photos are of her scantily clad in a bathing suit in different suggestive positions. Okay. Taylor was the name she went by online, but her real last name is Clenny. So that's why it's Courtney Clenny's story, not the Courtney Taylor story. Got it. Courtney had been with her boyfriend, Christian Obumseli, known by friends as Toby, who's 27 years old. Actually, he was a week from his 28th birthday at the time of this event. Now, the two had been together for about two years. Although a lot of friends called him Toby, I'm going to call him Christian because as someone who does not know him personally, it feels more natural to call him by his given name. Yeah. It's not totally clear what Christian did for a living, but he seemed to be living very comfortably. Maybe he was on OnlyFans. <laughs> you can see, you know, a lot of photos of him in very dapper designer clothing, and he lived a very comfortable life. Now, it did seem that he had some business association with cryptocurrency, which I don't understand. I understand OnlyFans more than cryptocurrency. Yeah, I don't get it. It's like Bitcoin. Yeah, I know about Bitcoin because okay. James talks about it all the time and how he could have made a lot of money had he got <laughs> in early on it. But what a what a shit. Yeah. Some reports say that Christian was the owner of Wiseman and Peachtree LLC, but I'm not really clear what type of business this was. And I was not able to find a taxable entity registered in Texas, Florida, or Delaware under that name. Okay. What we do know is that he grew up in Plano, Texas. He graduated from Texas Tech University, and he lived in Dallas before moving to Austin with Courtney. So ironic. We've just done like three Texas cases when we just got back from Texas and right around the Dallas area. And now I'm thinking we should have went to visit all these different I know. sites. Okay, yeah. next okay. time. So as I mentioned, the couple was together for about two years and they had just relocated to Miami in early 2022. The two share a luxury high rise apartment in the Edgewater section of Miami. Now, this is a very sought after area. It's waterfront, lots of young professionals. There's bars and restaurants and cute shops. So it seems like this would be a happy time for the couple. But unfortunately, there were many reports of domestic disturbances. And according to friends, as well as neighbors and building staff, the couple had a very tumultuous relationship. And this included breaking up, moving out, physical violence. And it seems to be a pattern in their relationship. In fact, neighbors of theirs in Austin reported hearing lots of fighting and things throwing and breaking coming from the couple's apartment. Not good. And Courtney had been arrested for domestic battery back in January 2021 while they were in Las Vegas. She, oh. she allegedly threw a glass at Christian and it narrowly missed him. Now, at this time, she did admit that they often got into physical altercations. It seems that charges were dropped soon after. This is very possibly because Christian did not cooperate. We yes. see this a lot with domestic disturbances. We do. Sometime during the last week of March, again, not long after the two moved into this new apartment together, Courtney kicked Christian out. As was the pattern, a few days later, they made up and he moved right back in. But again, things quickly unraveled. Just days before the incident that we are discussing, police were called to the apartment in response to yet another domestic disturbance. 
You know, Megan, the couple had so many fights that the building's management was moving to evict them. I don't blame them. And they were only there for a couple of weeks. It's it's terrible that you can't also, when you're in this, see this pattern that is just so unhealthy, so volatile. It foreshadows the kind of destruction or what's in front. We could say now, unfortunately, that the couple was not evicted, nor were they separated. And this would turn out to be a fatal mistake that many now say could have been prevented. That reminds me of the Gabby Petito case. This also sounds exactly like the Yardley case. <laughs> it does. Yeah, I guess this is a, a this is a theme we see. It's in, a theme. But it, it does sound very similar to Gabby Petito case in the right. way that things are escalating. Right. On April 3rd, 2022, Christian went out to run some errands and to grab some food. And Courtney stayed home with their two dogs. According to Christian's key fob, he returned home at 432. Just minutes later, neighbors began phoning the building security to report a disturbance coming from their apartment. I'm not sure exactly what the disturbance was, but I think it's safe to assume that there was yelling or throwing of items based on prior reports that we have heard. Right. Security then called the police around 4.45 to report this. And just 10 minutes later at 4.57 p.m., mm-hmm. 911 received a call from a hysterical Courtney Clenny reporting that her boyfriend had been stabbed. Now, in the background of the call, according to the arrest warrant, Christian could be heard saying he is dying and that he could not feel his arm. Oh, no. Courtney could also be heard saying, quote, I'm so sorry, baby. Oh, no. Yeah. So police and EMT arrived to find Courtney covered in blood and sobbing. She was also handcuffed. You can see pictures online. The neighbor had a balcony and they were able to take pictures of kind of the scene of what was going on. And you could see her wearing a bra and sweatpants covered in blood. I'm sorry, you're saying the neighbors took photos of this and publicized it? Uh, yes, that's what I'm saying, Megan. That always dis- I mean, does this surprise you, though? It disturbs me, but it's not very surprising, unfortunately. It's not surprising, but it is disturbing. And I'm just so bothered when people, uh, you I know, know, exploit I, these situations. I want to say that it was TMZ. If I'm picturing like the watermark that goes across. Yeah. And yeah, I, this is the worst moment of somebody's life. And I mean, maybe they didn't know just how bad it was, but I'm sure by the time they were selling the pictures, they knew what was going on. And yeah, I think that's really icky. There were also two large pools of blood, which is potentially an indication that Christian was bleeding for a while before police arrived. So this stabbing happened in their apartment. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. Christian had been stabbed in the chest. Now, I want to point out that many reports say the shoulder and the more legitimate resources and references do cite the chest, but you will see in a lot of media reports, it does say shoulder. So I would imagine if you have to picture it, it's like where your chest meets your shoulder. Yeah. In the call too, wasn't he, uh, you said he was holding his arm. Yeah. So maybe that's, that's why people probably said Mm -hmm. shoulder, but so it became clear of what happened here. Christian had been stabbed in the chest with a six inch blade that had penetrated three inches into his chest and pierced his subclavian artery. This artery lies just below the collarbone and it provides blood supply to the upper extremities, such as the head and the neck. Oh, gosh. It's almost right off the aorta. So when it's damaged, there is a very high likelihood of death from extreme loss of blood. Wow. Tragically, Christian was pronounced dead shortly after arriving at a nearby hospital. And when Courtney was questioned by the police from the very beginning, she admitted to killing Christian. But what do you think she claimed? Self-defense. She claimed self-defense. She told officers that she threw a knife from 10 feet away while defending herself from his violence. What do you think about that? That's not even a possibility that it would have landed inside his, you know, artery if she threw a knife from that far away. That's a silly story. This is clearly a dubious statement, though maybe not so apparent at the time of the stabbing. It became clear that Christian had been stabbed in the chest at close range 
rather than hit by a knife that was thrown from 10 feet away. Mm -hmm. The autopsy would later reveal that, quote, forceful downward thrust. Exactly. Later, Courtney would say that she stabbed him after he tried to choke her. So I'm not clear if she said this in the initial interview or after the autopsy results. But regardless, her story was always this was self-defense. And she stabbed him in response to him coming at her trying to choke her. I mean, that could still be the story, yep. but it's just the the description of throwing exactly. the yep. knife doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. Christian's manner of death was ruled homicide, and it was determined that it occurred sometime between 4.33 p.m. and 4.57 p.m. That is a tight timeline. Very rarely in a case do we see such a clear indication. Yeah. Another issue emerges here, though, when we talk about the timeline, because Courtney made two calls to her mother during that exact time. One call lasted six minutes and the other call lasted seven minutes, according to the police. Both of these calls were made before she dialed 911. Couldn't both of these calls be made before she stabbed him? Well, let's think about it. 4.33, let's say she called her mom 4.33, it lasted seven minutes, that's 4.40. And then another six minutes, 4.46, the the stabbing there. There's a 10-minute window, could have happened. It's possible. But I believe that there was a gap of a few minutes between the two calls also. So that tightens the timeline even more. It is possible. Maybe she was talking to her in a normal conversation. She gets off. They have a fight. She stabs him and then calls her mom. There were also some text messages from her mother shortly after the murder that said something like self-defense, don't speak to the lawyer. You know, like some, it was clear that her mother had known what happened. So oh, okay. I think it's safe to assume that she did call her mother at some point. So at least one of those conversations happened after she stabbed him. We don't know for sure, but I would think so. Okay. Courtney was immediately taken into custody, not necessarily because police were suspicious. In fact, many say that the officers on the scene believed Courtney's story of what happened. They believed it was self-defense. Now let's paint this picture. Courtney is somewhat petite. She's just about to ask this question. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, so Courtney's around 5'5". Five five. She's very slim, white female. Christian, on the other hand, a black male coming in at over six feet, very muscular. So on the scene, it would look like a, a, a big guy attacked her and this smaller woman only had the defense of yes. a knife. And the reason I bring up with their races are is I think that's relevant to what the initial feelings were on the scene. But- we can we could dissect that later, Megan. There's I mean, there's also just, so you know, in decision, legal decision making, there are theories like racial formation theory. And then there's a couple of other theories that basically state when you have to make a snap decision, mm-hmm. um, legal factors are exacerbated by race, yeah. mm-hmm. which doesn't make it right. It's just how we explain that. Just those the way to understand happen. it. Yes. So Courtney was taken into custody. They did not take her into custody under suspicion, but they took her into custody for another reason. A witness statement? No, she was actually detained under Florida's Baker Act. Have you ever heard of this? Nope. Okay, so this act is every state has some version of this, but basically this act protects people at risk of suicide or mental health crisis. So perhaps it's because she was so hysterical at the scene Uh, or maybe family or friends suggested that she might need help. Okay. So I just want to talk about this Baker Act for a moment because I think it's relevant. So sure. So Florida's Baker Act, which was enacted in 1971, enables involuntary, also known as emergency mental health services, to become available to a person who either cannot or will not request help themselves. Okay. So this might include law officials or family members who recognize the need for a person to receive immediate help. So she was freed shortly after being taken in. So it's unclear if there was actually a mental health evaluation, although under the Baker Act, 
in some cases, a health professional conducts an examination. Mm -hmm. And if it's found that the person meets the requirement for in for an involuntary examination, then they would be transferred to another treatment facility. In other cases, a doctor can determine if a person has been stabilized and the individual is no longer in an emergent situation. Which I imagine is what happened there. Yeah, it's not clear. But from the beginning, Christian's family did not buy Courtney's story and did not believe that it was self-defense and claimed that the violence in the couple's relationship was always at the hands of Courtney. And she had always been the aggressor against their mild-mannered loved one, and they believed that their loved one was murdered in cold blood. Mm. They also publicly stated that they believed Courtney was receiving special treatment as a white woman who killed a black man. They said, quote, we believe it is white privilege because any other person would have been arrested. I don't disagree, but I don't think it's fair to jump to this assessment just yet. I'm going to reserve my judgment on this one, but I can understand why they would feel that way. And we'll see at the end if I feel, you know, differently. Agreed. The family was also understandably upset because they didn't think that Courtney had shown any remorse. So even if it was self-defense, we would expect there to be some remorse. Do you agree? Yeah, I thought you said that she was saying, I'm sorry, baby. So I, I thought, well, let maybe... me explain what they mean by that. You're right. Initially, okay. she seemed very distraught. Okay. But as the family says, quote, we've seen videos of Courtney kissing her dogs while covered in what we believe to be my brother's blood. Let me stop there. There's a second part to this. So I want to say at the crime scene, mm-hmm. when she was covered in blood, hysterical, she was petting her dogs. I take no issue with this because she was just trying to be comforted. I don't either. Okay. But I could see if it's your family member, anything that person does is not is going to be seen wrong. There was also a video of her that surfaced of her casually getting drinks at a hotel bar, as they say, days later while my brother lay in the morgue. So let me go into what happened here. Okay. So there was a video that surfaced online that showed Courtney with her father in a hotel lobby. And she was pretty much being harassed. While we don't know exactly what was going on because we were not there. Some people argue that Courtney was at a bar with her father and they were drinking and having fun. Other people say she w- it was a hotel lobby that also had a bar in it and she was simply sitting there speaking with her father. Regardless, she was being harassed on this video. Someone took a video and said, you know, you killed someone. What are you doing here? And like pretty much rushed her out. Now, I don't think this is fair because and let's just say on the let's just say it was self-defense give her a break. I mean, she's allowed to go on with her life. What do we expect her to do? I mean, if she did kill him in cold blood, yes, I understand why this angers people, but I don't think society has the right to harass people before they get their day in court. Of course not. Not even after they get their day in court. You know what I mean, though. We don't condone vigilante justice, right? So Mm -hmm. we shouldn't condone this kind of thing either. So Courtney continues living her life. We're not sure exactly what she's doing, but she's not having an easy time, it seems. Christian's family and friends were grieving the loss of their loved one. Of course. However, four months later, the tides changed. Investigators had finally gathered enough evidence to arrest Courtney. Sometime over the summer, Courtney had checked herself into a rehab facility on the Big Island in Hawaii. This was reportedly for both substance abuse and PTSD. Some might ask why she was in Hawaii. Why was she seeking treatment for PTSD? I can't answer that. That's fine. You know, we might get these answers eventually. While she was at this facility on August 10th, 2020, Courtney was arrested and charged with second degree murder with a deadly weapon for the fatal stabbing and killing of her boyfriend. She waived her right to an extradition hearing and agreed to return to Florida to face second degree murder charges. In case people aren't aware, extradition is the process of arresting and returning a fugitive from one state to another state or country. 
So usually there's an extradition hearing where a judge determines whether the right person was arrested. This is pretty simple and straightforward because there could be mistaken identity. Once they realize it is, in fact, the correct person, then the transfer paperwork is reviewed for correctness. And if they find that the demand is proper, then the fugitive is held for pickup by the agent of the demanding state. Mm -hmm. Extradition is not super complicated when it comes to states, but Mm -hmm. it does get super complicated when it comes to countries. Yes. One more thing. The state where the fugitive is found is called the asylum state, and the state that wants the fugitive returned is called the demanding state. Oh, okay. So I wasn't surprised when this happened, but she was held without bail pending extradition. After the arrest, a press conference was held by the Miami-Dade state attorney and laid out the evidence in the case against Courtney. They declare that Christian had been the victim of domestic violence and that ultimately Courtney killed him. And they then showed surveillance footage of an altercation in an elevator in their apartment building that had took place several weeks before the stabbing. Now, the state attorney claimed that the clip showed, quote, the defendant aggressively attacking Christian saying, quote, I think the video was a descriptive way to show what the relationship was and who the aggressor was. And within days, this video was posted everywhere. I haven't seen it. I need you to see it, Megan. Can you pull it up and let's take a look at it together? All right. I've already got it. And we will post this video on our YouTube channel under courtroom and evidence playlist. And I definitely think everyone should take a look. But Megan, I'm curious what your reaction to this video is. Okay. There's no audio, correct? Correct. All right. So I see an elevator door opening. Courtney has entered the elevator and Christian is behind her. She already seems aggravated. Oh, she started hitting the screen and she's hitting him. She's hitting him. She's smacking him. What's he doing? He's putting his arms up. He's. It looks like he's defending himself. Now he, he got her almost in like a, not a headlock, but he was kind of trying to keep her away from him. And she continues to hit him. He looks like he's just defending himself and he's shaking his head. And yet they're yelling at each other. She keeps coming at him, though. And she's hitting him in the face. And he gets off the elevator and she's still chasing him behind him, hitting him. She hit him over, I don't know, that had to be over 10 times. And she kept going. I would say she was clearly the aggressor. And then it goes out of frame, correct? That's correct. Okay. So it seems like she has possibly been drinking. I mean, she seems very, very upset. He seems much calmer. Would you agree? I would agree. And she also walked in the elevator and like, hit the panel on the elevator right away. Like she was already pissed. To me, this generally appears defensive in nature, but there are people that look at this video and say he's bigger than her and he shouldn't have put his hands on her. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair either. By what I saw in that video, he was defending himself against someone who was attacking him. During the press conference, they focused on this one piece of evidence. It'll be interesting to see what else they have because this was their smoking gun, it seemed. Well, it'll be interesting to see if... I know what you're going to say. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Okay, it'll be interesting to see if they wind up going to trial if a judge will allow this because the defense will argue this is more prejudicial than probative is what I would say. Well, my next thought, Megan, was that this video will likely be inadmissible in court. But either way, I think it could be used for both sides because the defense will say it shows Christian was violent while the prosecutor will say it shows that Courtney was violent. I think most people will view this more in terms of Courtney being violent. Mm -hmm. And I think that the defense will, I would imagine they will fight hard to try to keep this out. I wouldn't say it'll necessarily be inadmissible because it could also be used to establish a pattern of conduct. And that's going to be the argument that the prosecution makes. Well, we'll find out soon. Now I'm like, oh, got to see what happens. There'll be pretrial motions, though, of course, to suppress this. So the defense was quick to defend Courtney's actions in the video, stating that, wait a minute, this doesn't tell the whole story. And I agree with that, right? Because you don't know what happened before. You don't know what happened after. 
Courtney's lawyer said, quote, it is a shame that the state attorney's office is seeking to win this case in the court of public opinion by showing an irrelevant and likely inadmissible video of Courtney. Goes on to say the video does not depict the events leading up to what was captured in the elevator. I agree with that. Um, oh, then it goes on to say that Obumseli was the abuser and he was the worst kind of abuser. He would manipulate and abuse Courtney in private when he thought nobody was around. The attorney has also said that it's an absolute injustice to charge a victim of domestic violence and human trafficking with such an unfounded and baseless charge. Human trafficking? Yes, exactly, Megan. I don't know where this came from. This is the first time we hear this claim of human trafficking. I'm not sure how they're going to establish that she was the victim of human trafficking, but I would think they would have to show that she was being held against her will and forced against her will to engage in sex acts. In addition, financial records would have to show that he was benefiting from her work in some way financially. Trafficking now is expanded. It doesn't necessarily mean physically forced, but it could mean kind of um, mentally. Yeah, like coerced into it or. Yeah, I would think that's I think that's going to be a hard one to show without specific evidence. So they might have something. I don't know. I think a lot of people were kind of surprised. It's almost like the record screeched like, wait, human trafficking? What? Where'd that come from? Which could very well be the case. But I, I it was just it came out of nowhere when you just read that for me. Yes, I agree. I was uh, surprised by that. So as I mentioned, she was arrested on the 10th of August, just recently in 2022. Mm -hmm. Her first, well, her defense's first court appearance was on August 27th. Courtney did not attend that appearance. There was a written plea entered of not guilty. Of course. The arraignment on 831, she did not attend the arraignment, but the plea of not guilty was just further confirmed. As we talked about, her defense attorney filed a motion requesting that discovery in the case be sealed, arguing that the release of the elevator footage was biased against his client. I agree. It's funny, though, because then the prosecution argued that the defense attorney was attempting to control the public narrative because he's been very vocal with many news outlets. So they're already there's a lot of back and forth with these I don't, two already. I don't like showing the video to everyone either. I think the video might if it if it can be shown in a court of law and it's relevant. Great. Um, not great. But, you know, yeah. what I'm saying that's the appropriate forum. Mm -hmm. Neither one of them should be trying their case in the media. Mm -hmm. And that's just the truth. Yeah. I know it's what both sides do, but they should be reserving this for the courtroom. That's yeah. where the adversarial process takes place. And I failed to mention, but I think you can probably assume that she was denied bond. And her attorney argued that at the bond hearing, he said that this is, you know, ridiculous. The worst charge here is manslaughter. I thought you said it was second degree murder. Yes, it is. second. They arrested her on second degree murder. But her attorney saying you've got nothing at best. You have manslaughter, which is less than second degree murder. Right. But the charge still stands right now as second yeah, degree but murder. He's, yeah. People are granted bond, though, in second degree murder cases. Well, the reason why she was not granted bond is because... The judge who was at the initial bond hearing said simply, I don't know enough about the case to make this decision. Mm. The first time that Courtney actually appeared in court was on September 6th at the evidentiary hearing. Now, this was the first time we've seen her since she was extradited back to Miami. One of the main purposes of this hearing was the defense wanted to protect the adult content on Courtney's phone, saying that it could taint the jury and prevent Courtney from receiving a fair and impartial trial. So we're talking about limiting the release of, quote, salacious and sexually explicit evidence to the public. As the defense attorney says, quote, 
This is going to turn into a circus of media outlets publishing salacious materials which have nothing to do with guilt or innocence. And I don't disagree with this. Yeah, what are they what do they want to release? I mean, what are we talking are we talking about like emails, text, OnlyFans uh, stuff? Mostly probably they're on her phone. There were sexually explicit photos and pornographic material. I don't see how this relates to the case either. Well, I, I mean if the prosecution can somehow link it. Otherwise, I agree. It's just going to taint the case. Well, then you'll be surprised to know that the judge denied the defense's motion. Then there must be something of uh, serious probative value in there. I mean, at least I would hope so, because otherwise I think it it is just prejudicial. Well, we'll have to wait and see. The trial is now scheduled for December 19th. Right now, Courtney is still held without bond, but her defense plans to refile for a pre-trial release. So we'll keep an eye on this case and we will definitely be releasing an update either during or after the trial of Courtney Clinney. Although the defense may have been denied this motion, they are still working on many other angles for their defense. For one, Courtney's attorney claims that he has photos of bruises that were on Courtney the day that Christian was murdered. So Christian's family has publicly stated that they want Courtney to spend the rest of her life in prison. Now, she could face life behind bars. She's facing a sentence of 25 to life depending on aggravating and mitigating factors. Of course, we know it's ultimately up to a jury to decide what will happen. So, Megan, this case is going to trial, and I think it's going to be a pretty big one. The only thing I can see happening is if if the motion to suppress the elevator video is granted, the prosecution might not have a case and they might have to drop charges. So it'll be interesting to see what happens at the evidentiary hearing. I would predict that if that tape doesn't get in, they're going to try, the prosecution will try for a plea. But the defense might say, well, you don't have anything. Yes. Um, you know, we could present a strong case. So, you know, they'll lose leverage. I mean, look, we also don't know what's going on. They might have other evidence. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes right yep. now. It's possible that they do have. It's possible they have witnesses who can say, no, no, I heard her yell. I, I or I saw her abuse him. We just don't know right now because it's a little in the infancy here. We have a little bit of a glimpse into that because in the media, I have yet to see any reports of Christian being violent against Courtney, but mm. lots of reports of Courtney being violent against Christian. So even if they can't get the tape in, they might be they able might to get some other incidents in. You don't know which ones they're going to find admissible or not. It might not be they're throwing it all out. They yep. might say, hey, the tape, you know, we don't have enough of the tape, but we sure have enough about another incident that was reported. And I think this is a case where she would probably testify. And I think if she testifies, then I think the defense has even a better chance. She has to testify because there's no story without her. You testimony. have to testify in self-defense. I know like that yeah. there have been a couple people who haven't, but it's almost impossible to avoid. You need to get up on the stand and say what happened. There's no other way to sh show it unless you tell your story. Yeah. I have no idea. I would want to say this, see this play out in a trial and see all the evidence. Mm -hmm. Does this remind you at all of Nikki Adamando case? No, it doesn't. Why? You said Nikki Adamando, but it, this doesn't because Nikki Adamando claim self-defense. But I will say this, there was she was there was a long established record of her being the victim of the perpetrator who she killed. In this instance, it seems like it's the the opposite right now as mm -hmm. it stands that she, you know, um, Courtney claimed self-defense. But it seems like the record of violence is her record so yep. far. It is possible that she just never reported the violence against her, but we'll have to see what the evidence oh, yeah, shows no. us. It's certainly possible, but I'm saying if we looked at the documents and what you found so far, it's only really right now showing her as um, an abuser. So I would have to see how this plays out before making any judgment on that. As far as the case goes, we're just going to kind of sit tight and see what happens. 
So, Megan, this case is a bit unique because men are significantly more likely to be the perpetrators of domestic violence. And I think that's a problem. I don't think we believe male victims of domestic violence simply because of their gender. We're used to men being the aggressors. And I don't think that's fair. So I I like that in the court of public opinion, people are not quick to say, oh, he's a man. She's a woman. It must have been he was abusing her. No, no. I think we've progressed so much on that. You know, uh, this is definitely a topic I teach in women in crime. And historically, females are were looked at as victims. And we are victimized more than males are. I think five uh, times more likely or something like it's that. It's something right? like that. However, that's also based on underreporting by males. So I would get I, I would still I, I'm absolutely almost certain that females are victimized at higher rates than males. But the number of males is definitely underestimated. And males don't report for many reasons. And, and, and many of them are the same as as females, that they are ashamed embarrassed. It's a private matter. So, you know, they don't want others to look at them as being weak. You know, there's a lot, a lot of similarities as well to females and why they're underreported. I think you said this, but Christian's friends and family said that they, they witnessed incidents of violence by Courtney to him. You said that they reported there was a history and Courtney was the aggressor. Is that by what Christian told them or did anyone that you know of, you know, see that? People saw it. I'm not sure to what extent. She was According to some friends or family, she was often the verbal aggressor and always like pushing him, like not physically, but, you know, pushing his buttons as far as if she physically would harm him. There are some reports that some people say, yes, she was the one violent towards him, but it's not clear what type of violence. Again, these are things we'd have to see what would happen on examination and cross-examination. And I'm also going to assume that we would know now if he had any uh, history of domestic incidents. He has a history of being a really mild-mannered, nice guy, but you don't know what goes on behind closed doors, so it's 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 important to let every side be heard. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're not going to make any false assumptions. I think we're pretty good at keeping an open mind, though. Yeah, and he's not here to defend himself, so it's important that family and friends and other evidence gets listened to in his defense. I mean, I'm sure it's also going to bode very badly for her, just so you know, that she initially said that she threw the knife across the room She's already discredited there. And if she gets up on the stand, they're going to say, didn't you, in fact, lie immediately? And isn't that because you, you know, you were covering your tracks because you knew that you had committed a crime? Right. Possibly. I also think her occupation might work against her unfairly. Her attorney is also worried that some of her, quote, adult photos and videos might become part of the state's file and that that would unfairly prejudice the jury against her. Unfortunately, women, particularly, their occupations are scrutinized in these situations, and I don't think that works for her, and I don't think that's fair, and I don't think that her occupation should be part of the conversation. I think it's irrelevant. I do, too. And I think the prosecution will try to get it in, though, but I I think it's completely prejudicial, and that's going to be a situation where if it gets in during voir dire, they're going to have to figure out if jurors can look beyond that um, and who can actually be impartial and not consider that. Yeah, it's definitely going to unfairly taint the jury, I think. This is an interesting um, case in that, you know, it's it's very you know different than what we've seen in terms of, you know, domestic abuse. But it's also, you know, there's a very clear gender and race intersection here. So I'm curious to see how that'll play out in in perceptions too later on, and even in in legal in a courtroom. I wonder if anyone will you know will this be 
uh, will these factors kind of impact legal decision making? It's kind of hard to parse that out, but I'm sure we'll be able to keep our eye on this a little bit and, and figure out, you know, what factors are at play here when they make decisions. There's a lot of legal commentary that's talking about this case because of all those intersections that you mentioned. Oh, so they're wondering who's, who would be better to have for the prosecution? Who's going to be better to have yeah, for the defense? Yeah, it's, because it's opposite. Who's gonna, each side right. is looking at an opposite demographic of who's going to work in their favor. Does she have a private attorney or a public defender? She has a private attorney. So I wonder if also if she has resources, if they can afford a jury consultant. I would imagine they could. Amy, this is interesting. What are your predictions, trial or not? Too hard I'm, to tell. <laughs> I'm kind of torn because I'm not sure what the prosecution has. If they they keep leaning so heavily on this video, and I think there's a good chance that the video is inadmissible, and I think there's a good chance that pictures, uh, you know, her adult only photos. I think there's a good chance those will be inadmissible. I think it depends on what judge they get at the evidentiary hearing. It does, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go early prediction and say yeah. trial. And you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll be watching if it happens. Oh, for sure. And we'll definitely be doing an update. So. Definitely keep your eye out for that. So, All right, Amy. Yeah. Thank you so much. Before we go today, do we have patron questions? We sure do. We right. have three questions today. Okay. All right, Megan. The first question is, if you could meet any criminal, alive or dead, who would it be? And the listener goes on to say, and no, they would not be able to kill you during this interaction. I wouldn't be worried about that, but I'd love to get Drew Peterson in a room That's that he just you know gets underneath my skin. For those of you who don't know, Drew, Drew Peterson was a former police officer incarcerated for the murder of his third wife. Uh, I have no doubt that he murdered his second wife. He is cocky. He's arrogant. He's just an awful person. So why would you want to be with him? I'd like to get him in a room and just dismantle all of his bullshit. Gotcha. I, I don't know why. I'd like to see if he could ever crack or if there's any, any like... Anything behind those eyes. Anything behind him. He's, he's real. I don't know why. I've always wanted to get him in a room and <laughs> break him. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, Megan, there's no... Nobody I could think of that intrigues me enough that I want to sit down and talk to them. That's not true. You know who intrigues you enough? Who? Your students who are offenders. Yes. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. Your your students are your, you know what I mean? Who are offenders are people yeah. that you sit down with and you talk with them and, and you know, you get personal knowledge on, or you know what I yeah. mean? You get to yeah. know them better. And I think that's probably why. Yeah. That's why. I, you yeah. find more gratification from that than, you know. I think you're right. Thank you for answering that for me. You know me better than I know myself. Oh, <laughs> Megan, the next question is a loaded one and one that we have talked a lot about both in our classes and on the podcast. It's about true crime and ethics mm -hmm. as both criminologists and content creators. What are our views on it? Um, I just, uh, well, you can go ahead first if you want, but we just talked about this with Kim Goldman during the interview. And it was something I said, now that you're part of the media, you know, what's, how do we, as true crime content creators, how do we act responsible? You know, what's the responsible way? And I think there is just have integrity. We've talked a lot about salaciousness. Like we don't report facts that are salacious or show pictures that are you know, just just for gore factor, you know, you can have integrity, you can be honest, and you can report things in a meaningful way, in a sensitive way, in a respectful way. I don't think that, uh, I would love to see this community move forward and everyone move in that direction. But I still think there's just a lot of the salacious and if it bleeds, it leads kind of approach. And I just think that's not sensitive. Yes. And I think as you kind of touched on, there's enough content out there that you could listen to whatever you want. And if if you're someone who enjoys comedy, true crime podcasts, that's for you. I think it's you know, not I, for us. It's not for us. I 
have no judgment on people who listen or create that. But for me, I think it's important that we tell a story, try to be unbiased, talk about action items, talk about how the system got it right or wrong, talk about how this happened, how we could prevent it. I think it's important to not just tell the story, but for there to be a little more than just the story for the story's sake. I agree. Kim Goldman said she had trouble when she uh, presented some networks with, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of a victim-based but educational programming. They just weren't interested. It just wasn't like... It's not salacious. Exactly. So I think that I keep that in mind all the time. And talking about true crime ethics, just talk about Mm -hmm. it. Talk about it with fellow podcasters, Mm -hmm. too. We talked about having a panel on this, which I think we should. Yes. And I really respect when content creators give back to the community yes. in some way, whether it be victim organizations, any any actual support, instead of, you know, exploiting these stories, you're giving something back by educating or by donating or doing what you can. Yep. All right, Megan, you're going to like the last question. What movie or book character do you most identify with? Remember when I got a nasty email in direct appeal? Somebody told me I wasn't Olivia Benson on yeah. SVU when I was like... Okay, I guess I'm not. I don't know that there's a specific person. I know that, you know, when I watched Mindhunter, per se, there was a psychologist, a female doctor who was working on understanding the the mind. So she was a researcher and an interviewer, but her point was to understand the behavior. You know, she wasn't an investigator. She wasn't law enforcement, per se, but she worked with law enforcement. I can kind of relate to that type of person. And I know that's a, actually um, a real person as well. Um, on mainstream uh, shows, there's a criminologist, Casey Jordan, and she's a professor, but she does a lot of uh, interpretation of criminal behavior. She special- specializes in violence, and I see her appear on a lot of true crime shows, so I can also identify with her, I guess. It's funny. I went in the opposite direction. Where'd you go? Natalie Portman in Garden State. I just love that character. That's all. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the question was a character that you identify with, right? It didn't say it has to be criminology related. No, it didn't. Okay. Yeah. No, I just love that movie so much. And I love her character in that movie. So I'm going to keep it lighthearted. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you so Good much. question. For- you know what's going to happen. I'll think of someone else as soon as we uh, of course. end. But- and I'll think of someone that's more intelligent and criminological based. <laughs> I wouldn't say intelligent. Actually, no, but- Natalie Portman's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, more, <laughs> more relevant to criminology. All right. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening today. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include the Miami Herald, New York Post, Daily Mail, Rolling Stone, People.com, Long Crime Sidebar, Court TV, and Fox. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.